Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is a by the book episode, a conversation with Rob Reamer. And in this episode of the podcast, I am very excited to share with you a book that I came across several years ago at the recommendation of a good friend. And it's a book entitled Soul Care, Seven Transformational Principles for a Healthy Soul. And throughout my life, there have been a handful of books that I have appreciated greatly. In fact, that's kind of the purpose of this aspect of the podcast is to share those kinds of books with you. But every once in a while, a book comes across my lap, or maybe it's come across your lap or individual's laps that the Holy Spirit has chosen is going to be a very powerful read in your life, exactly at a time that you need it, in a way where you're going to meet face-to-face with Jesus in a way that you never have before through that book. And Soul Care for me is a book just like that. I have read Soul Care from cover to cover at least three times in the past several years, and it had the kind of impact on me that reading every word almost on every page had the sense that the author, Rob, was reading a page right out of my journal and just reading my mail, for lack of a better euphemism to use to describe it. And he launched in at the beginning of his book into identity issues and looking at the soul and how we oftentimes keep things hidden and tucked away in the soul that we're either embarrassed to bring to the surface or to bring into the light. And we really don't ultimately know whether it's going to be safe if we bring those things out into the open. And as he began to speak about his own story and his own experiences as a Christian, he launched into issues of identity and building our lives on faulty foundations of performance or people pleasing or seeking for control and prior to reading that section of his book I had no idea that all three had a tremendous grip and a stranglehold in my own life and I had grown up in a context that kind of identified the workings of personal sin as the issue that Jesus has come to deal with and only that issue And it was through reading Rob's book that I came to understand that there is an enemy of our souls who is actively at work using things like wounds and family sin patterns and fears to also cripple people. That we have complicity in human individual choices and sins, but there is someone and something at work actively seeking to steal, to kill, and to destroy And when we read the Gospels, we see Jesus dealing often with the demonic and dealing often with demon oppression. And I grew up in a Baptist context and Rob was the first person I have come across who is not only theologically sound and incredibly biblically literate, but who also speaks very frankly and very openly about the presence of the demonic and the workings of the enemy of our souls in people's regular day-to-day lives. And so Rob, throughout the chapters of this book, opens up things of identity, the need for true biblical repentance, overcoming family sin patterns, dealing with forgiveness, with healing wounds, overcoming our fears, and then a final chapter on how it is that we actually can be set free from the presence of the enemy and the ways that he wreaks havoc on our souls in the real world. 
And I'm not sure exactly all of the things that Jesus chose to do in and through me after reading this book, but I will tell you this, my life is never the same and never will be as a result of reading what Rob has written in this book. Something powerful took place in an actual encounter with the person of Jesus through a lot of the mess and the junk that I had chosen to hide deeply within my own soul, the shame that I carried around, both because of things that had been done to me, as well as ways that I chose to respond. And the way that Rob dips into not only these realities, but the way he applies scripture to them were ways that I had never conceived Jesus literally wanted us to apply scripture in these ways. I had never seen it all of my life. And I'm thankful to Rob. And we've spoken before, even prior to this conversation, and I was able to thank him personally for the work that his book has done in and through my own life. And so I realize in this podcast, we spend a lot of time and I feel like I'm trying to always go back and forth between the internal world that we live in within ourselves and the darkness that we see there, the sin that we see there, the wounds that we see there and the need we have for Jesus to meet us in those places. But that it is always directly proportional to the compassion and the mercy and the generosity and the wisdom we see outside of ourselves when we see the same brokenness, the same sin, and the same darkness in society as a whole. And after reading through the book of Soul Care, it becomes very clear to me that the healthiest way a Christian can be and the healthiest way a church can be is when we are equally aware of the darkness, sin, brokenness, wounds, unforgiveness, bitterness, fears internally as we are with the darkness, the wounds, the bitterness, the sins, the fears, the insecurities externally. They're always related. And so my individual health before Jesus is directly proportional to how I see the church. What I'm willing to expose myself to personally before Jesus is how willing I am to encourage the church to do the same how willing I am to bring my hidden darkness and shame into the light with Jesus to let him deal with it there will be in direct proportion to how willing and free and open I am to bring relational concerns into the light and to deal with them appropriately in that setting. And so I'm immensely grateful to Rob for unpacking, if you will, the suitcase of my soul, as he will explain at the opening few minutes of our conversation so that we are able to walk this life faithfully and in true freedom, the way Jesus always intended for human beings to live. And so I'm excited for you to listen to Rob. He may challenge you. You may disagree with things that he is saying, but I would encourage you to pick up his book and to read it and to lay your own soul bare before him with whom we have to give an account because he's come to set the captives free. And there is no greater news in the world than to meet Jesus in such a way through his love and compassion that he truly can set us free. And so I commend to you the conversation that I had in this By the Book episode, a conversation with Rob Reamer. Welcome back, Unbinding the Bible listeners. I am excited for the show that I have planned today. Um, We have another By the Book episode. This is a conversation with Rob Reamer. Uh, 
And Rob is a professor of pastoral theology at Alliance Theological Seminary in Nyack, New York, and as well as the founding pastor of South Shore Community Church in Massachusetts. Rob is an accomplished author. His books, uh, Soul Care, River Dwellers, Deep Faith, and Pathways to the King, have been sold worldwide. Rob regularly speaks at pastors' conferences, leadership conferences, churches, and seminaries around the world. And Rob and his wife, Jen, live in Nyack, New York area with their four children, Danielle, Courtney, Darcy, and Craig. And so I'm very excited for all of you to have the chance to just listen in on a conversation that Rob and I have about just one of his books, and that's um, Soul Care on this particular show. And so, Rob, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Joshua. Yeah. Well, Rob, I um, came across your book, Soul Care. It was right around this time, about four years ago. And so um, personally, my life has gone through a pretty dramatic shift since then, um, largely in part because of the things that you share in your book. And so first of all, I want to thank you and wanted to just allow some of the listeners to this podcast to join us in a conversation about your book and um, about the soul and the importance of it. So um, would just love it if you might start us off the way you often introduce your book with your your concept and idea of the suitcase and how our souls are like that and just how you would generally launch us into a discussion about your book. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I travel a lot, Joshua, and that's probably why I started using this analogy. But, uh, you know, when I take a trip, when I first leave from home the suitcase i carry with me of course is filled with all nice neat clean folded clothes i'm there for three or four days by the time i leave you know all the clothes are now dirty i come back home with this suitcase full of dirty clothes before i can take my next trip i gotta unpack all the dirty clothes before i can pack in nice neat clean folded clothes and I think this is somewhat analogous to the soul. The problem is we want to pack in the good stuff. We want to pack in God's love, his freedom, his fullness, his peace, his joy. And yet if our suitcase is already full with anger, bitterness, hurt, lies that we believe about ourselves, offense against God, fears, etc., there's no room in the suitcase of our souls for all the good things we want to pack in. And thus, this is Paul's concept, I think, in Ephesians when he says you got to take off the old before you put on the new. And too many times in religious circles, we put on the new stuff and try to pack it in on top of the old without really taking off the old. Wow. So that's what was really interesting to me when I first read your book was, I don't know, Rob, I guess it was even the concept of self-awareness, which I'm in my early 40s. But I have to tell you that even prior to four years ago, I had never even heard of the term or it never sunk in anyway about becoming self-aware to know that I'm carrying around some of this baggage. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what are the kinds of things, again, you mentioned bitterness and anger and resentment and, and hurt. Just what are the kinds of things that are oftentimes going unchecked in our souls and how did they get there? Yeah, well, so first, first John chapter one, you know, is a biblical concept um, that 
illuminates this idea of self-awareness. First John chapter one says, God is light in him. There is no darkness. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son purifies us from all sins. So you get this idea that God is shining light into the suitcase of our souls. Listen, God never shines light into the suitcase to make you feel bad. God shines light into the suitcase of your soul to get you free. That's the whole purpose. But what God is doing is he's showing you things in the suitcase that have you out of alignment with him, things that get you out of step, to use Paul's line, with the spirit. And and these are these kinds of things. Listen, a lot of our sins, you know, uh, it's it's. Uh, the stuff that we're doing that's wrong, but it's in the secret place. You know, we haven't told anybody. Sometimes we haven't really repented of it. And so Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, shines light into the suitcase of our souls and says, hey, hey are you aware of this issue of envy, for example, in your life? Uh, are you aware of this fear in your life that's keeping you from following me? And he shines this light into the suitcase. Our job is to stand in the light and say, yes, God, that's true about me. And uh, to come back into alignment with the Holy Spirit. So a lot of it's sin. Some of it's not, though. Some of it's emotional stuff. You know, fear in and of itself isn't a sin. The problem is when we're fearful, we're more likely to sin. Uh, The people of God have messed up more in times of fear than any other time. That's why the number one commandment in the Bible is fear not. In other words, that's the thing God says more than any other. Uh, It's the same with anger. Anger in itself is not sin. Paul says in Ephesians 4, do do not let the sun go down on your anger and so doing give the devil a foothold. But before he says that, he says, in your anger, do not sin. In other words, it's not a sin to be angry. The problem is when we're angry, we are more likely to sin. So God shines light. Sometimes anger becomes bitterness. Now that's a sin. Sometimes it's just the beginning stages of anger. He's shining light then. He's trying to keep you from getting to sin. Say, hey, you need to process this hurt. You need to forgive this person. You need to bring this anger into the light because if it goes underground, it's going to become a bitter root and it's going to produce a nasty fruit in your life. Yeah. Well, and you say a lot of things in your book too about certain fears or anger. I'm getting them confused actually, which is why I'm bringing this up. But um, you'll say that certain um, emotions in your life will manifest as different emotions, but the but the root driving them is oftentimes something that you're you're even unaware of. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So sometimes I feel anger. I mean, I'll give you a specific example that came up in this season here with the COVID-19 issue, right? So my wife comes to me one day, I don't know, probably four or five weeks ago, she comes to me and she says to me, are you irritated with me? Well, no, I'm not irritated with you, but I am irritated. And she said, why? It's fear. Now, I wasn't aware of the fear that was there right then, but I realize when I have irritation, that's usually something else. You know, Jesus Mm -hmm. uses the phrase, you know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the person acts. I add that phrase, the person acts, because he says things like adultery flow from the heart. Well, that's clearly not a thought. That's an action. 
And so it's the thoughts, the actions, the motives, they come from the heart. So a lot of times, unfortunately, in religion, we do sin management, behavior management, but we don't go for the heart and soul issues. My favorite soul care question, Joshua, is really the question, what's underneath that? So don't just tell me you're struggling with, you know, irritation and grumpiness and anger. Why? What's driving that? So you might be angry because you're afraid. You might be angry because you have hurt. You might be angry because you have bitter roots. You might be angry for all kinds of reasons. So what's driving that? Don't just count to 10. Don't just, you know, try to create some behavior management methodologies to deal with your anger. Get to the roots of your anger and then process them with God and get free. Yeah. And I think Rob, you, when you, when you identified it there, what's underneath that. And then your, your brief section on the, you know, that we have a gospel of sin management. I I guess there's no other way to describe it except to say, that's the world I grew up in. Um, You know, don't, don't lust, lust is bad. Instead of what's going under the surface or what, why does shame drive us to an infinite number of different Um, outlets for working out our shame. And and you had a section early on in the book talking about all addictions being deeply rooted in shame. Um, And and I'll just, I mean, Rob, on every page of the book, the first three times I read it, (laughs) I had different uh, highlighters or different colored pens marking things down because each time um, the Holy Spirit was very clear to me. So can, can you talk a little bit about how you see these deeply rooted things um, rooted in shame and how the gospel of sin management is actually powerless to set us, literally set us free from the things that are driving us to addiction. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So let's talk about addiction for a second. I, I make that comment that all all addiction is rooted in shame. I'll broaden it slightly for you here and unpack it. But okay. all addiction has three things in common. First, they're rooted in shame. And I'll talk about that one in a second. Second, all addicts are liars. And the reason for that is because you don't want to get, you know, exposed because of your shame in your addiction. So you deceive, you cover up, you lie, you hide, you you move into secret places with your addiction. And it's shame based. But all addicts are liars. And three, all addicts are self-centered. Addiction by its very nature is self-centered. You are feeding the self-life. So let's go to shame. Shame is a uh, primary emotion. And underneath shame is really a fear that I'm not going to be loved. If you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. It's a fear that I don't have what it takes to succeed in life, in my career, in relationships. It saps me of my confidence And it builds intimacy barriers between me and other people, including God, because I have this fear that if you knew me, you wouldn't love me. So therefore, I'm not going to present myself to you. And I got to tell you, as a result, you start lying to yourself. You believe your own press clippings because you've got to cover up. You've got to build walls to protect yourself lest you get exposed and be found wanting. So what ends up happening, one of these things that happens is because I have this enormous 
deprivation in my soul, this tremendous sense of wanting to be loved, but fearing I'm not lovable. And because I built up these intimacy barriers to protect people from getting too close to me, that's what shame does, builds intimacy barriers, because I'm afraid if you got too close, you'd know I'm not lovable. So I keep you at arm's distance, either emotionally, physically, or whatever. So I build up these walls. You can't get in. Now I'm starved, starved for love emotionally. So what do I do? Mm, I end up reaching out for something to cover this incredible pain in my inner being, this ache in my soul for intimacy. So I run to something like pornography. But the problem is the pornography doesn't satisfy. So I go again and again and again. It gives me a quick hit of adrenaline rush, but I get hooked. I get stuck because I keep feeding into the shame. And, you know, then what we do is we say to people, well, you know, the key to break this is you got to be honest and get accountability. That helps, you know, but the reality is if I don't deal with the root of shame, what ends up happening is I just substitute another addiction. So now instead of being addicted to pornography, I get addicted to alcohol or I get addicted to prescription drugs or I get addicted to fantasy novels or I get addicted to TV or social media or work or I substitute an addiction that's more acceptable. I'll tell you what lots of fundamentalists and religious people do. They substitute legalism and they substitute religion. That's what they substitute. Wow. So how now th- now you're you're really you're, you're really opening up something which I love to talk about. How how does that work then? How how are people substituting um unacceptable addictions with acceptable things like legalism and religion? Yeah, so for example, uh you know, sometimes psychologists will use this phrase. They'll say addiction sometimes skips a generation. So let's say grandpa was an alcoholic, right? And his his son sees this addiction and his father is deeply affected, feels embarrassed, shame, because shame is imparted. We teach what we know. We reproduce who we are. So grandpa passes on shame to his son. Plus, there's the shame of the addiction itself. He sees the addiction. He's embarrassed by behaviors. So you get the the addiction that's given through your behavior modeling communication, you can't give what you don't have, but then you also have the, the alcohol itself that creates addiction. So the son says, I am never going to drink. And he becomes a teetotaler, right? And then the, the next generation, the grandson becomes an addict again. And people look at this and go, you know, man, it, it skipped a generation. Well, not really. What happened was the father rebelled against the addiction But listen, you cannot use rebellion as a tool of freedom. You are a spiritual being in a spiritual world. You are always giving away spiritual access. You don't get to choose if you give away access. You only get to choose to whom you give away access. When you pick up the tools of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, you're giving access to God. When you pick up the tools of the kingdom of darkness, you're giving access to the enemy of your soul. Rebellion is a tool of darkness. So when you rebel against the family sin pattern of addiction, you are still bound by the addiction. 
you can't get free by using a tool of the kingdom of darkness. Wow. You're still shackled. Did I, did I lose you for a second or are you still there? So all you do is substitute the addiction. So instead of using alcohol, they become legalistic people. They become religious people. They serve all the time at church. They're deeply addicted to religion. And that's super, super common. And then the kid sees all that legalism, sees all that addiction to religion and goes, I didn't want any part of that. So he starts drinking. Wow. So in other words, then when you come right back to the gospel of sin management or these behavioral issues, what, what it seems like you're saying is that when those addictions and that shame-driven um, reality under the surface manifesting itself in actions that appear godly or appear spiritual or appear religious, but are just as far off base as those unacceptable behaviors, uh, or I'm sorry. Yeah. As just as, as far off base as those unacceptable behaviors, even though it appears to be acceptable. Right. Because you never dealt with the roots. It's like chopping off the head of a weed. The thing's going to keep coming back until you pull it up by the roots. Listen, the number one indicator in the U.S. right now that someone is going to be physically abused, for example, or emotionally abused or sexually abused, the number one indicator that they're going to grow up in a home of abuse is addiction. Okay. When people have parents that are addicts, they're more likely to grow up in an atmosphere of abuse. You know what the number two indicator is? Fundamentalism. The number two indicator that you are going to grow up in a home of abuse is fundamentalism. Wow. And the reason for that is because it's still shame-based. You've never dealt with the roots of the shame. You're still acting in shame. Listen, legalism takes you one step beyond God's standard for holiness. So for example, in God's standard of holiness, he says, you cannot be drunk. That's because he doesn't want you to do drunkenness because in drunkenness, all kinds of terrible things happen. People act in ways they would never act. They're violent, they're sexually promiscuous, et cetera, et cetera. And so he says, you can't be drunk. Legalism takes the standard of holiness that God sets before us and says, we got to one-up God in his holiness standard because, dear God, if we let our children drink, they're going to become drunk and then they're going to end up in the gutters. And so, oh, my gosh, you can't drink. <laughs> and, okay, legalism is always fear-based. It's always shaming. And it's always controlling. And as a result, you end up with people who came out of a home of addiction Finding the shame, driving them to systems of control like legalism, and they become addicted to that because it's a boundary that they think this is going to prevent me from going the path of my father. Yep. And yep. then they pass on to their children and they rebel. Once again, that's what they themselves did. They rebelled against grandpa and now their son rebels against them. They're like, this is terrible. I don't want all these rules. So I rebel. Yeah. Well, and what was what really stood out to me among a lot of things, but when you, when you compare the kingdom of light with the kingdom of darkness, if you pick up a tool of the kingdom of darkness and attempt to use it to walk in the light, it's going to fail. And and those are the that 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 kind of language again going deep. What's underneath that kind of language for me? You were one of the first people I had ever read and therefore interacted with, really, in terms of what the enemy's working 
in the souls and hearts of people is actually like. Uh, because I think it was caricatured for me growing up. I mean, we would read the Gospels and talk about, you know, a, a, a demon-oppressed man or so on. And sort of that was just kind of left field for me. I mean, I believed the Gospels, but that was like, you know, that stuff happens in other cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your language was helpful, even as you talk about having a demon, being demonized, or even the language you used of, okay, if it's hard for you to picture that picture, like you know, a monkey on your back. It's something that's like weighing you down and something that's, I, I guess, Rob, almost like comfortably keeping us in bondage to these deep rooted realities. Um, so yep. can you share with us a little like where these soul issues meet with the enemy of our soul and the havoc that he really does wreak in the lives of well-intentioned, even in Christian people. Yeah. So first let me say this, um, language is super important in renewal, right? So let me just talk to language for a second. I intentionally use language that other people don't use, but so does Jesus. The problem with religion is we get focused on language. So classic example, you know, we say you must be born again, right? Well, work with me for a second. Jesus uses that exactly one time in all of his interactions. The only time he uses it is actually with a religious person, Nicodemus, John chapter three. Why does he use the term with a religious person? He uses the term with a religious person because it was a religious term. It's coming out of Ezekiel 36. And he's talking about this reality that he's going to give us a new heart. We're going to have a new spirit put within us. That's what he's talking about there because the people couldn't follow. So he says to Nicodemus, you ought to know these things. You're Israel's teacher. This stuff should be known to you. So when he's talking to a religious person, he uses some religious phraseology sometimes, but then he brings new illumination to it, revelation and light to it, right? When he's talking to the next person evangelistically, John chapter four, the woman at the well, he talks about water. He talks about living water. Why? Because that's what she's dealing with. So Jesus is constantly using updated, fresh, new analogies to talk about spiritual realities. When you get caught in religion, the the meanings no longer hold the depth of power. And so you have to freshen language in order to create new confrontational realities and spiritual uh, experiences and insights. Otherwise, it just becomes uh, old and outdated and it's just uh, uh, religion. That's all it is. And so you got to get fresh language. So let me start there. That's why you see me use language that's you just referred to. Now, the second thing you asked about was about, you know, sort of the spiritual realm uh, and some of this soul stuff. Well, listen, I would say this. The number one thing God wants is access. Again, that's not a biblical term, but I'm going to tell you it is a biblical concept that I'm using a new term for. But let me use that passage in Ephesians to explain the concept of access for a second, right? Ephesians 4 again, in your your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and so doing give the devil 
a foothold. Literally, the word there for foothold in Greek is the word for topography. It's topos in Greek. It's the word we get topography from. And what he's saying is you're giving the enemy literally an inhabited place. Okay, now work with me for a second. He's talking about access. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, here you have two options before you when you've been hurt and you're getting angry. Option number one, do the biblical thing. And as Jesus calls us to bless those who curse us, forgive those who sin against us, love our enemies. That right there is giving God access. Hmm. But if we don't give God access, then we will do the opposite, and that is we will give the enemy access. If we hold on to our grudges, nurse our wounds, rehearse our offenses, and let that anger seethe within us, we will develop bitter roots. The enemy will get access, and he will get ground in an inhabited place. And this is what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, you've got to give God access. You are a spiritual being in a spiritual world. You are always giving away spiritual access. You don't get to choose if you give away access. You only get to choose to who you give away access. And when you give access to God and you pick up the tools of the kingdom, you're bringing yourself into alignment with God and you'll access the freedom and fullness of God. I think discipleship, Joshua, comes down to two things. First, you have to give God access. And that means you pick up the tools of the kingdom and you obey God. Okay, you do what God asks you to do. You give him access to your heart. It means when he shines light into the suitcase of your soul and he says that right there is anger. You've got to bless those who curse you, forgive those who sin against you. You say yes. You give him access. Second, after you give access, you gain access. You gain access to the victories of Jesus. Those victories of Jesus are all won for us on the cross. They're all available to us in the heavenly realms. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 says we have every blessing we need in the heavenly realms. Second Peter chapter 1 says we have all that we need for life and godliness through this relationship with Jesus Christ. He's won all the victories. And when you give access to God, you gain access to the victories. Then what you have to do is you have to appropriate those victories. And using the right tools of the kingdom is the key to appropriating the victories. If everything is, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, even if it's a screw. Well, and no matter how hard you try, you can't drive in a screw with a hammer. You've yeah. got to use the right tool. So for us, one of our problems in the church is we have a worldview, a Western worldview, that has colored our biblical lenses. It has distorted our biblical lenses. As a result, we don't see the spiritual reality, and we're hitting our hammer away on the top of the screw. But there are some things in our people that are never going to change unless we use the appropriate tool of the kingdom called deliverance. Jesus cast out demons because it was a real deal. And, you know, he commanded the disciples to cast out demons. 
Matthew chapter 28, he commanded the disciples to train us and to teach us to obey everything he had commanded them, which includes cast out demons. And yet the vast majority of churches don't take him up on this clear command in scripture that he both modeled and passed on to us. And as a result, I think there's more and more access points that have been given over and uh, to the enemy and people are in bondage. They just can't get free unless the church starts doing what's appropriate. Right. And I'm really thankful for that summary just there, Rob, because th this is one of the biggest areas that impacted me through reading your book was that you were the first person I had ever come across. And I, I do not mean ill will. I, am, I had so many biases and so many prejudices unknown to me, but I had looked out on the horizon at those who talked about deliverance or talked about the demonic and they were, they were put in my loony bin category. And those who knew how to do biblical exegesis and who were interested in real theology and in pastoral work, those were the good guys. And you brought the two together so seamlessly and so effortlessly. I literally scratched my head for weeks. Like, does a person like this actually exist? Like, I mean, it just, it was a worldview shift all by itself. And I, I don't know if I'm giving you credit for that other than God used you in your writing to, to be that first person for me. And so Rob, you, you invited me not only to allow the light to shine on me, but you allow me to admit that quite frankly, there are things that I am afraid to bring into the light. But the fact is I am powerless to stop these patterns of dysfunction in my life and no amount of Bible memory and church attendance and praying away the bad feelings is making any of it go away. So what, what happened was I had this collision course of my best attempts at being a good Christian were falling flat repeatedly until you began to present Jesus as someone who has greater power than our stubborn wills, but also greater power than the enemy. And so, I mean, can you, can you talk a little bit, I'm assuming some of my Listeners may not know anything about what you mean by deliverance or yeah. by get, getting free. Could you talk about that for just a minute? Sure. So, uh, you know, we live in a spiritual world. We're spiritual beings in a spiritual world, and there are other spiritual beings. We have a material body. There's angels and demons. Uh, demons are really fallen angels. They are spiritual entities. And they're out there. They exist. They're real. They're in the Bible. They're starting in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the word Satan is a Hebrew word. Hasatana is the actual Hebrew word, the Satan, the accuser. And uh, he first appears in the biblical storyline by that name. I know Genesis has the serpent there in the garden, but that's not the word Satan. He first appears in Chronicles. He's also in the book of Job, for example. And so, you know, we have this spiritual enemy out there who's a leader of a host of spiritual enemies. And when by the time you get to the Gospels, uh, you see Jesus actually doing deliverance ministries. This is the first time you see deliverance ministries being done in the Bible. That is, he's casting out these evil spirits that have taken up residence in the human soul. 
and uh, he, he cast them out. Well, it's not actually the first time Deliverance Ministries appears on the scene in history. As a matter of fact, they appear in the intertestamental period. That is the period between the time when the Old Testament was finished being written, written and the New Testament was started in the writing process. And so there were Jewish exorcists. As a matter of fact, Jesus testifies to the effectiveness of these Jewish exorcists in uh, Luke chapter 11 and uh, in a conversation with the Pharisees where they're uh, getting on him about doing a deliverance over a mute guy. And they say, you do this by the power of Beelzebul. And he responds to him and says, if I do this by the power of Beelzebul, how do your followers cast them out? which is an interesting conversation. So he acknowledges these Jewish exorcists that are out there in that day and age that were having success. And uh, that's historically uh, accurate as well. That happens in the uh, intertestamental period. And then Jesus, of course, Matthew chapter 10, gives the disciples authority to cast out demons and Finally, as I said, Matthew 28 commands that they teach us to obey everything he's commanded them. So this is part of the ministry of the church. The early church actually did the ministry of deliverance as part of baptism. Now, there's a guy in the early writings. His name was Hippolytus. He wrote a book called The Apostolic Tradition, and he's teaching how the early apostles uh, actually took the teachings of Jesus and applied them to the church. And in the apostolic tradition, he says that they did deliverance ministries, cast out demons for people after they were converted, after they went through a bit of a catechism. That is, they would teach them monotheism. Most of these people would have come out of pluralistic backgrounds where they're worshiping multiple deities. So they teach them Jesus only. They teach them, you know, the triune God. They teach them about the Trinity, get them to, to, to renounce all these other practices then secondly, they would teach them to walk in the light as God is in the light. They give God access, walk in step with the Holy Spirit, to use Paul's expression. And then third, they did their deliverance. Uh, they just had a fundamental belief that anybody that worshipped any other deity would end up with demons. And so they would just do their deliverance. And then fourth, they would baptize them. When they went to the waters of the baptism, they'd have them renounce all previous attachments to these other spiritual entities and then they would set them free. Wow. And they baptized them. So that was just part of the history of the church. And yet we lost it because of our Western worldview. Right. Well, and that's the way it sounded to me when you laid out your book was that you have these principles that you say oftentimes go unaddressed. And just to highlight some of those, you know, fears of soul wounds, family sin patterns, um, forgiveness, identity issues, things that we don't often get real and get vulnerable and walk in the light with. And so the way I understand your language is that you say when, when we begin to do this walking in the light and the hard work of, you know, standing in these truths, not just your, your John chapter eight always stands out to me when you said it's not, if you know the truth then the truth will set you free. It says, if you hold to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So learning how to hold to that in the moment of temptation is what we're being called to do. But that you are teaching us to till up the soil of our souls and you're loosening any type of ground, if that's the word we can use, that that inhabited place um, that the enemy could get his hands in. And yeah. um, 
I, I guess that's that's really so. So maybe my question, one of my questions, is then is 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 our life work then primarily unpacking the suitcase, or is it refilling it with the spirit, or is it a constant mixture of both? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it is constant mixture of both, right? So think with me about this for a second, Joshua. But yeah, I mean, so so often what happens is this: I've walked through my life. And my confessions weren't current. Uh, I've carried with me some hurts and bitterness has kind of seeped into the soil of my soul. It's packed, if you will, into the suitcase of my soul. And uh, all of a sudden, I start to go through something like soul care. I start to allow God to shine the light into the suitcase. And he shows me there's stuff there that I've never confessed. There's secrets there that I've never brought into the light with him and others. You notice that first John passage talks about walking in the light with God and others. And, you know, he says, God is light in him. There's no darkness. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. Well, he shouldn't even have said that logically. He should have said, we'll have fellowship with him. That would have been consistent with the rest of the text. But in John's mind, if you're going to really walk in the light with God, then you're going to be walking in the light with your brother because you're going to be walking in humility. The only reason I would be hidden with you is because of pride. I want you to think better of me than I really am. And if you're really walking in pride, then you're not really in the light with God because God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so this is John's logic. So anyways, we have these secrets We have these bitter things that are in the suitcase of the soul. We finally give God access. We unpack all this stuff. And then we have more room for God. And he starts to fill in these places with his peace, with his love, with his presence. But here's the reality. Next week, somebody's going to hurt you. Somebody's going to say something to offend you. Next week, you're going to be tempted and you are going to sin. You're going to do something wrong. I guarantee it. Next week, you will sin. So now what do you do with that? Well, here's the deal. These principles aren't just something to be read in a book. They're not just something to be participated in like a soul care conference that I do. These are principles to be integrated into our lives on a daily basis. These are the principles of the kingdom for freedom and fullness. So what that means is I got to constantly appropriate the victories of Jesus every time I need them. So I sin again. I got to confess again. I got to walk in the light with God and others. Somebody hurts me. I got to forgive again. I got to bless those who curse me, forgive those who sin against me, love my enemies. Why? Because these are the principles for freedom. This is what God is like. Yeah. And if you're going to walk in step with God, you've got to do the things God does. And when you don't, you're giving the enemy access. Wow. So, so how do you, how would you explain the difference then between the giving God access and the bringing things into the light, not only with God, but with others um, and how it, it oftentimes manifests in some churches about, you know, get an accountability partner, which yeah. I think, I, I think the intention, I, I want to give people, you know, credit where credit, I think the intention is good. I've just noticed and have experienced it just kind of falls flat. Like it doesn't have any liberating effect. What, what's going on there? Why, why does it do that? 
All right. So first, uh, let me talk about the difference and then I'll come to that. Uh, So the difference, one, only God can forgive. Right. So walking in the light with someone else isn't about forgiveness. Walking in the light with someone else really is about helping you break free from shame. Let me walk through shame again a little bit. Shame is an identity based issue that is manifest in community. It's identity based. Again, it's this fear that if you knew me, you wouldn't love me. I can bring my sin to God and it will absolutely be covered. Only God can forgive. Only the blood of Jesus can cover my sin. And only Jesus' death and resurrection paid the price for me to be right with God. And so I go to Jesus. I confess my sins. That's all that's needed for forgiveness. You do not need to walk in the light to be forgiven. However, shame is another matter. See, I can confess all that to God and still carry shame in the suitcase of my soul. But when I bring it into the light with another person, you see, I said to you before, shame is a identity based issue that's manifested in community. Why is it manifested in community? Because I have this fear that if you knew me, you wouldn't love me. The only way to break that is to let you know me and hope you love me. Yeah. And when I finally let someone in and they actually love me, see, now that breaks down shame. Again, I said to you earlier, shame forces, therefore, intimacy barriers. I build these walls up between me and others. Now I tear those walls down and I let you in and you really love me. And now I feel deeply loved and my shame is cured. See, when you've been wounded by community, you can only be healed in community. That's just the way God works. He's redemptive. And so he calls us into this new kingdom family where we act like Jesus with one another and it creates an opportunity for healing. So that's really why I think the big difference there. Now let me answer the second part of the question that you asked. And that is why do some people have accountability, but they don't really get free? The answer to that one, I think, is pretty simple in this sense. I think what happens is we're religious people. When you introduce soul care, for example, to a religious context where you haven't really undressed religion, broken down religion, confronted religion, what ends up happening is it becomes a new form of religion. So what happens is I realize all of a sudden, oh, so now, and if you think about religion, let me break it down, simplified for a second. Religion's really a set of check boxes. I've got to do this read my Bible, pray, go to church, tithe, serve, evangelize. These are all things that I have to check off. I check these boxes and then I belong. And oh, by the way, there's these things I can't do. I can't lust. I can't blow up in anger. I can't do this. I can't do that. And so I have all these things on my list that I check off. I must do this and all these other things. I can't do this. And I check these boxes off. And this is what makes me belong in religion. And this is this controlling system, right? can't drink, can't smoke, can't do whatever. All right. Now, all of a sudden you introduce soul care to a culture that's religious, that is used to the checkbox mentality. You know what they do? They go, oh, and now in order to belong around here, you have to be honest. You have to walk in the light with God and others. You got to be confessional. So therefore, what I need to do is I need to confess enough to belong, but I can't really let everybody know everything because you never broke the culture of religion, which is a culture of shame. So therefore, they're not going to fully open up. That isn't going to happen. So what they do is they confess enough to be accepted, but they're not really being real. It's not real honesty. 
and there's no freedom in that. Right. So you have to dismantle religion. This is why Jesus, you see a lot of what he teaches, if you're careful to observe in the Gospels, he's actually dismantling dismantling the religious culture of his day. It's super common. This is why he ends up in the wineskin conversation with him, right? You know, you, you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. It's just going to burst. He's, he's doing that in a time when he's defending why he's not obeying their laws. And that is the traditions of the elders. Yeah. And it's because he's defying religion. He's trying to dismantle religion in order to get the new culture, the culture of the kingdom to exist. Listen, I think discipleship, to use another image for discipleship, ultimately all it is is shifting cultures. It's shifting mm. culture from your family of origin culture from your church of origin culture, from your nation of origin culture. It's shifting cultures from that which you're used to, to the culture of the kingdom of God. And every time kingdom culture confronts or conflicts with my family culture or my church culture, if I don't choose kingdom culture, I'm not really a follower. Hmm. This is what Jesus meant when he said, you know, I'm telling you, you got to hate your mother and father and follow me. Listen, he doesn't have anything against good old mom and dad. What's his point? His point is, if you're really going to be a member of the family of God, your culture, your, your, your loyalty to kingdom culture must take ultimate priority in your life. And your loyalty to this culture must supersede every other loyalty you've ever had. So you must bring yourself in alignment with the culture of the king. Yeah. Oh, that was such a beautiful summary. Thank you. Just thank you for that last several minutes. Because it, it, the more I read the Gospels, and Rob, I, it, it's almost as if I, I read them now, and I'm just, I've been reading this for my life, and I've never read it this way. It is just one giant invitation from Jesus to more and more intimacy with him, and consequently more and more freedom from all of the kinds of things that literally bring us death, which is why I kind of think he's just offering us real life. There's a, there's a, a weightiness or a, a weightlessness rather um, of life in Christ. And so I, as I experience this and begin baby steps in, you know, breaking free from those cultures of origin and resting in a new one, a question that's really, I guess it weighs on me, honestly, but, but why is it? Do you think, or are there maybe multiple reasons why some people in our churches never unpack their suitcases? Well, I mean, let's start with the culture of the church and let's start where, uh, where that has led us over the years. When you have a shame-based culture, uh, it is not a culture that invites people to be truly honest. And you learn that if you're going to be honest, you won't be accepted. Well, you know, you get smacked down enough with that. And pretty soon you're going to you're going to play by the rules and you want to belong. Then you're going to learn how to hide and you're not going to be honest. So you start with that. Uh, But then let's take personal responsibility. Listen, you're the only one responsible for you, regardless of what your church culture is, regardless of what American culture is, etc. You're the one that's responsible for you. So when you read 1 John 1 and choose not to live into it, you have violated 
the scriptures. And he calls us to walk in the light with God and others. It's the clear call of the passage. This isn't the only place, by the way. Think about James, where he's talking about praying for the sick. And in that passage, he says, you know, when you go to pray for the sick, confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed. Uh, He's calling us to walk in the light. Same as John. He's just using different terminology, but it's the same concept. And so, you know, this is something that uh, we're responsible for even if no one else does it. When I do soul care conferences around the world, Joshua, lots of times people come to me and say, but you don't understand what's happened to me. You know, I, I was open and honest and vulnerable and I got hurt. Yeah, welcome to the human family. Who among us hasn't been hurt? Of course you've been hurt. Of course you shared with someone and they violated it. There's not a person among us that hasn't had that happen. But you see, the Bible lays out what to do during times like that, too. When someone sins against you, you go to them one on one. If they don't listen, you bring a witness along. You seek to resolve the conflict. You don't go to show them they're wrong. You go to restore relationship. The goal is restorative, not punitive. And if, you know, if that then works, he also is very clear that I need to forgive this person who's offended me. So he gives you all the tools of the kingdom to be able to access freedom and fullness and forgiveness and re-engagement into true community. The problem is we don't do the right thing. So we get hurt and we think, oh, I'm never going to trust anybody again. Well, that's not biblical. That's not what he called you to do. He called you to go talk to that person, not gossip against that person. He called you to forgive that person, not put up a shield of anger to protect you from further wounding. He called you, if you do that, you're given the enemy access. But when you lay down your shield of anger, forgive that person, have that conversation, build towards reconciliation. Now you can re-engage in community again. And so the bottom line is, if you pick up the tools of the kingdom and appropriate these things, you can live in victory even when stuff doesn't go right. But you're in a fallen world. It isn't going to go right. Right. Yeah. But I think and I but I, and I think what is really driving you as you write and what's driving me in doing this podcast is is to make the path clear for how people can really find freedom. Um, and, and so I, if I can, you know, I got like one more question and then we'll sort of wrap some things up, but I, I'm, I'm thinking, Rob, there may be some people who are listening into this conversation based on those that I know who listen to the podcast. Um, but there, there may be some people who have, who have truly, truly been hurt, um, uh, abuse, um, maybe sexual abuse. I know of a, of a number of people that are close to my own life and that's their story. And it is hard. Yep. And then there's people who have been complicit maybe as the oppressor, um, just they've abused alcohol or they've participated in some sexual brokenness, things that they're ashamed of and don't want to, don't know what to do with it, don't know how to be free of it. It's just always nagging on them. Um, and, and some of these people have even looked and said, you know, this, this maybe is just my, my cross to bear, right? Um, that's just, um, there's, that's the rest of my life for this point. Uh, this, this woundedness, this abuse is just going to be with me forever. Or these actions that I've committed, you know, the, the sleepless nights I have, that's just reality for me. And some of the upbringing I experienced with the cultures who speak 
maybe coldly about, you know, you just need to have enough faith or you just need to stop doing that or you just need to believe this. And I, I, I kind of wonder if there are those who listen to you talk about freedom who might recoil at what they've been told about what real inner healing should be or why they're not finding freedom. How would you kind of walk them through what's the difference between what you're describing and what you believe Jesus is really offering people and maybe what some people recoil against when they hear these kinds of things? All right, let's let's unpack this with several things. First, um, you got to hold on to what God has told you. Uh, so let's start with the person who feels condemned, right? Well, we know in Romans 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Living under condemnation is living underneath your privilege as a kingdom citizen. And if mm. I have not yet accessed the freedom from condemnation that is mine in Christ, that is got to be because there's a barrier there that I need to discover and I need to take down in order to access because God is true to his word. And so I believe to my core that you could access a life free from condemnation to my core. I believe to my core that you could access a life free from shame. However, lots of these people that say that stuff, uh, well, you just can't receive it. When they say things like that, all they're doing is adding to shame. That's what they're doing. The mm -hmm. problem is sometimes we're not sophisticated enough. We don't have enough complexities to uh, all of the to access all of the tools of the kingdom. So we're too one dimensional. We're too simplistic. Well, you just need to believe. Well, yeah, sometimes that's actually true. Sometimes it is a matter of faith. But I got to tell you, sometimes it's a matter of a deliverance. And if it's a matter of deliverance, all of your just belief stuff is just nonsense. It's too simplistic and you just need to do deliverance. You've got to use the right tool of the kingdom. So again, if you're not going to complexify and use all the tools that are available to us in the gospel, then you're going to end up heaping shame and guilt and condemnation on people and saying it's their fault they're stuck. Mm, now, yeah. let me go to the second thing. One of the tools to the kingdom is your identity in Christ. A lot of people get stuck because of a victimization mentality. So here's the bottom line, right? You, you may have been victimized, physical abuse, sexual abuse, bullying, etc., rape. You may have been victimized many times over many years by multiple people. And that's real. The pain is real. The offense is real. The hurt is real. And, and what ends up happening is it, your will gets weakened. It's what I call a bent will. And it's just this, if you just bend over, you know, just put your head down to so your chin touches your chest. And if you're in a room full of people, you would notice you can't see anybody else in the room. You can only see yourself and you have a distorted view of yourself. This is what happens when we get a bent will. We have a distorted view of ourselves. And here's the problem. We are making life too much about ourselves. And, and what ends up happening is we have our eyes on ourselves and we feel like this, phrases like this. There's nothing I can do. I can't help myself. I can't change. I'm powerless. And these are all the expressions of a victim. Now, that's true. You were victimized. But pause for a second. That's not true 
about who you are in Christ. In Christ, you may have been victimized, but you are not a victim. Not in Christ, you're not. You're not a victim. You've been victimized, but you're not a victim. You're more than a conqueror. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Now, hear me for a second. I don't want to just throw around religious phrases and quote a bunch of scriptures and make a bunch of declarations and continue to live with a bent will. You have to use the tools of the kingdom to address the bent will and be able to strengthen the identity. So this goes to that John 8, 31 passage that you referenced before, you know, where Jesus, we always misquote him. We always say, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But that is not what Jesus taught. That is a Western worldview. If you just believe the right things, you'll, you'll, you'll automatically come together for you. Nonsense. Just read your Bible and show up at church. You'll be better. Nonsense. Okay, that's not what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said precisely. If you hold to my teaching, then you're really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But you have to hold on to the teaching. When? Precisely when you're acting like a victim, when you're thinking like a victim, when you're believing that you're a victim, when you think oh, there's nothing I can do, I'm powerless, I can't change, I can't overcome. That's when you need to hold on to the truth. That's not who I am in Christ. My favorite thing about identity stuff is I say to people, you got to know when you're standing on this platform, for example, of being a victim, you got to know what you think, what's running through your head. What are the phrases that run through your head when you're on that platform? What do you feel? What are the emotions that are cycling through your heart when you're standing on that victimization platform? What do you think? What do you feel? And how do you act? How do you behave? Do you, do you isolate? Do you feel depressed? Do you feel anxious? How do you think? How do you feel? How do you act? See, those become your indicator clues that you are now firmly entrenched in a, in a victimized platform. And you need to say to yourself, that is not who I am in Christ. And now you need to hold on to the truth before you act like that victim again. You need to go, that's not who I am in Christ. It's true that I've been victimized. It's not true that I'm permanently a victim. And then you tell yourself the truth. And then you think to yourself, how would a deeply loved person who has been chosen since the foundations of the earth act right now? And then you do it. And the more you start to integrate the truth of who you are in Christ, this is, this is integration of the truth. Our problem is in a Western world, we are a knowledge-based society. We just think knowledge will set you free. That's, that's just theological crap. Hmm. Yep. The knowledge-based discipleship stuff doesn't produce life change. Jesus was an obedience-based discipleship teacher. And the only way we're going to get free is to integrate that thing and go, now, how would a deeply loved, chosen from the foundations of the person act from the foundations of the world person act right now in this situation and then do it. That's integration. And that will change your life. Wow. Well, Rob, I, I want to recommend uh, so your, your book, Soul Care, to all of the listeners. So obviously that's, I'm going to try to put a link to in the show notes to your book. Um, but let's say someone's just listening to this episode. It may be the only one they listen to, or they're following along in this podcast. But if somebody said, oh, wow, oh man, something's really hit me. You know, they, they, they say, I, I want to start unpacking 
the suitcase, um, you know, obviously aside from buying your book, which I would encourage them to do, but let's say they don't, where, where would you, what, what would be step one for somebody right now saying, I want to start heading in this direction? Yeah. So the very first thing is very few people are going to be able to do it alone. You've got to do hmm. it with resource people, community, etc. For me, you know, I mean, uh, at first John one passage is incredibly instructive. So I started getting honest with other people. That was part of the unpacking. You're going to need resources. Listen, chances are you've had your whole life in church. Uh, you, you've read the Bible. You know all this stuff. Your problem isn't knowledge. Your problem is your worldview is limited. Your understanding of those things that you know, You're, you've got not enough knowledge. You have knowledge, but you lack revelation. The great gap in most Christians' life is the gap between that which they know and that which has not yet been made known to them by the Holy Spirit. And so you're going to need revelation. So therefore, that's why you pick up a book like Soul Care, Joshua. It's what happened to you. You picked up this book, and I'm, 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 I'm exegeting things you've read hundreds of times before. And right. your eyes are getting open because I'm using different words. I'm unpacking it from a different perspective, and you're going... Oh my word, why didn't I see that before? Yep. That's because your worldview prevented you from seeing it clearly. So get get a book, get some books on this stuff, get a friend to process, don't do it alone, get the resources you need and get help. Get really honest. Humility begins with honesty and it ends with responsibility. You've got to be honest and you've got to take responsibility for your life. Wow. Well, Rob, thank you so much for agreeing just to talk for an hour and uh, share what the Holy Spirit has taught you and led you. Um, just thank you. Thank you for the time you've taken to be on the show with us today. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Joshua. It's uh, always uh, fun conversations around this stuff. So I appreciate the uh, opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm definitely going to probably want to talk to you again. I know you've got a book on uh, spiritual authority that's supposed to be coming out at the end of the summer. Uh, can you give us just a brief snapshot of that one as we can look forward to it? Yeah, so spiritual authority will be out in August. I actually have another book called Calm in the Storm that I've just written. It'll be out this week. And oh, uh, it's about this current crisis that we're going through. And it's really how God can redeem any crisis how God can redeem a crisis in our, in our lives personally and corporately to advance the kingdom. That's what this one's about. The book oh, on really? spiritual authority is really about, uh, you know, I think how to develop spiritual authority. Uh, most people who talk about spiritual authority talk about it strictly in a positional sense. This is, this is about who you are in Christ. And that's true. As a matter of fact, the way I say it is this, spiritual authority is rooted in identity. So it really is about who you are in Christ, but it's expanded in intimacy and it's activated by faith. And so really the book unpacks that one sentence, spiritual authority is rooted in identity, expanded in intimacy and activated by faith. Wow. Yes. And that, that your, your teaching there through the the book Soul Care as well, just realizing the, the position we have and how we can live from strength in that position is something that I think the church desperately needs today. So thanks again, Rob. I really appreciate this. It's nice to hear the birds chirping in the background too. I can tell you're outside somewhere and hopefully I'm sitting on my porch day. looking over a lake. Yeah, man, it is beautiful. That's awesome.
Yeah. Well, enjoy the rest of this gorgeous day. Thanks so much for talking with us. It's good to see you, Joshua. Good to chat with you. All righty. Bye-bye. Peace. As with so many of our other By the Book episodes, I really trust that you got um, even a fraction of the benefit that I received from being able to talk to Rob for about an hour. Listening back over our conversation, I realized how many things we touched on and yet how many things we were simply unable to, um, to talk about that Rob does in fact address in his book. And so my encouragement to you is just as it was in the introduction, and that is that you would go out and pick up a copy of Soul Care, either for your Kindle or in the paperback version, and just set aside some time over several weeks where you can really devote honesty and humility into pursuing some deep and some potentially scary things in life on the path to truly being set free um, with Jesus. And so again, thanks Rob for taking the time to talk with us. Listeners, I could not recommend this book highly enough for the potential power that it has to transform you as an individual follower of Jesus. And then that honestly has um, helped me and helped me in my own life to pave the way to be able to be to see things both within my own life and, and outside my life for the benefit of the church. So listeners continue to, uh, tune in. Thank you so much for those. I think many of you are starting to share these episodes with others. There's some new listeners to the podcast these past several weeks, and that's always exciting. For those who have left a rating or a review, thank you for doing that. And if you've not yet had a chance just to take five minutes this week or even this day and leave me a rating or a review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these podcasts on, I would greatly appreciate that. And um, until next week, Have a great week.